Welcome to the podcast of Woburn Baptist Church. We hope that you enjoy listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. Well, last night I uh, didn't get to finish what I was doing, and I definitely wanted to do that tonight, so I'm going to try to speed it up a little bit, because uh, it's a very, very important topic. You know, my wife Nancy and I went to Washington, D.C. in 2011 as part of our 30th anniversary. How many of you have got to go to Washington, D.C. and do some touring or anything? Nobody. It's a great time. One of my favorite places to go was the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, where they make the money, you know, where they make the currency. That was fun. It's fascinating to watch and to learn just a few of the intricate details that the government does, you know, to to try to stay ahead of the counterfeiters, just making tweaks here and there, you know, on our currency to stay ahead of them. They go to great lengths to do that in the design of the paper bills. Now, of course, when the tour guide asks for questions, there's always the one question they're prepared for. Do you give free samples? After that person is removed from the tour uh, by burly men wearing dark suits and sunglasses who have no sense of humor, uh, then the serious questions begin. And some folks are business owners. And you know, what they want to know is how do we recognize fake bills? You know, we don't want to be losing money, you know, in our business. It makes sense. And the answer is simple yet profound. And you probably already know, just learn the marks of a true bill. I mean, you can try to study, you know, the, the fake bills, but they're already moved on to something else by the time you learn what they're doing now. So you learn the marks of a true bill, and then you won't have trouble knowing the fakes. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Now inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. You watch their behavior, watch their actions. What are they accomplishing for the kingdom? Now, Christ would have every true Holy Spirit indwelt believer informed and prepared with enough truth to recognize the enemy in any form when he or she rears their head. Remember, Paul warned, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. And I'll tell you, it's been at work since the Garden of Eden. We know that. The spirit of Antichrist has been at work since then and up to this very day. Jesus said, false Christ, false prophets are going to appear and perform signs and miracles. And I like this, to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Now, who are the elect? Believers. Holy Spirit indwelt believers. You ask Christ into your life, you receive the Holy Spirit. He says it would, they would deceive even the elect if that were possible. So what does that insinuate? <laughs> if we're believers, we should be able to recognize that's false. That's not, I'm not going to fall for that. You should be able to recognize it. I told that group of young people and many young people since that I've traveled with and worked with over the years, I said, you might not know this book from cover to cover, but I said, most of you are true believers and you can be sitting in a service and we, we, a lot of times there'd be another preacher, another evangelist preaching while we're doing the music and the drama or something. And you can tell when that preacher is preaching if what he is saying is true or not, if you're a believer. And there were a few times in a couple I remember in particular where they were way out there. 
And as we're on our way home, you know, I have the young people saying, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what that, that was? That was just wrong. That was wrong, wasn't it, Brother Rick? I'm going, very perceptive. You know, and they might not be able to put their finger on it in the scripture, but they had the Holy Spirit in their lives to recognize. That's what Jesus is talking about. Informed believers should never be deceived by false teaching, no matter how subtle, because Satan can be subtle. He will be as subtle as he needs to be to people who don't know the truth, or he can just be blatant right out there because nobody knows the truth, you know, in this particular group or whatever, and he'll say, I can say whatever, and they're going to believe it. If you say it convincingly enough, anybody will believe it. There have been many figures who can and, and should be considered as antichrists, and in fact, certain organizations, some governments, any false religion can be considered an antichrist uh, form of government. So I wanted to go back and pick up where I left off last night. I wanted to finish quickly by looking at what John says about the Antichrist. Because this is another topic that has interested and perplexed people for centuries. Uh, who or what is the Antichrist? Uh, is he presently alive or is he or, or it been with us all along? You know, I've been asked these questions. Uh, we said, last night I mentioned a few of the names that have been tossed around over the years. Uh, Nero. Uh, Hitler, Stalin, Henry Kissinger, any assortment of popes have been mentioned. Now, I mentioned Mikhail Gorbachev, remember? So he even has a little mark on his head. You know, people thought there have been a lot of figures who can should, and should be considered as antichrist. And in fact, there are a lot of organizations today, some governments and any false religion can be considered antichrist. John uses a lot of figurative language. Uh, concerning Antichrist. But uh, the Apostle John wrote four other books beside Revelation. And he addresses the topic of the Antichrist in 1 John 2, 18 through 23, in very clear manner. And listen to this, because this is interesting. A lot of people don't know about this passage. They haven't found this passage. He says, dear children, this is the last hour, what Jesus would say at the end of the age. Uh, this is the last time until the Lord comes again. It's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, listen, he says, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Another way of saying the end of the age. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. People say, who is the us he's talking about that went out from us? Persecution has a way of purging the church. False believers within a church, whenever trouble comes, they're going to say, wait a second, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for the good times. You know, I like the fellowship. I like the music. I like the meals. I like that. But hey, it's getting kind of rough around here. I think I'm going to step out. You see what I'm saying? They went out from us. They didn't belong to us. They weren't true. People are not willing to die for a cause that they are not committed to. Does that make sense? But John continues. He goes, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. He's talking about the Holy Spirit again. And all of you know the truth. Because what's the, he says, the, the Spirit will lead you into all truth. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. And then he goes on, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, he's not just talking about with mouth. He's talking about with behavior as well. I mean, Jesus said, hey, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? If you love me, you will 
keep my commandments. So they're denying, you're denying by your behavior or as well as your mouth. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Some people may claim to know Jesus, but their actions say differently. Now let's look at John in, in, in 2 John verse 7. He says, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And any such person, person is the deceiver and the antichrist. You hear how he says it? Many. But they are the deceiver, the antichrist. You know, a lot of us, we're looking for one person. One person. And there may very well be a super antichrist, you know, that rises someday. But he's saying, what? There are many. There always have been. There always will be. There are many. And he, he qualifies that by saying who they are. John not only had false teachers in mind, but he probably had a certain empire in mind, you know, along with its godless leadership at the time, Emperor Nero. So the term Antichrist can be used to describe individuals, can also be used to describe institutions, ways of thought, such as evolution, humanism, which lifts up the accomplishments of man and knowledge, Communism, fascism, these systems of thought and government, they deny that God exists. They, what's one of their things that they say is, get God out of the minds of the people. We don't want them to have hope in a higher power. Their hope needs to lie with us, the government. We will meet their needs. We will provide for them. Does that sound familiar? We get them on our government dole. They need to be dependent upon us to meet all their needs. They don't need to be dependent on some higher power. That's part of how fascism, humanism, and communism work. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, and we went through that, uh, concerning a certain individual who set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. You know, Emperor Caligula, ever hear Caligula? Uh, he lived from uh, AD 37 through 41 as emperor of Rome, and he made a threat to set up a statue of himself. He was just a young guy. When he became emperor, he was 24. He was really cocky. He had no common sense whatsoever. Yeah, he got the throne pretty much, they said, by assassinating uh, the one that was before him. And so anyway, he, he took up over and, and he really hated the Jews for what they were doing and the problem that they could be to the empire. So he says, I'm going to send a statue of myself and it's going to be set up in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, even the governor, you know, Pontius Pilate, he wasn't excited about that. He only had a, maybe a thousand soldiers to keep Jerusalem at bay, over a million Jews at bay, you know, try to keep them under control. And here he's going to send a statue to put in their temple. They are going to revolt. And they did. I mean, they were doing everything they possibly can to keep this from happening. So the Roman authorities, as local Roman authorities, as well as the Jews, were doing everything they possibly could to keep this from happening, to avoid a revolt. And they were able to do so until Caligula committed suicide at the age of 28. Or he was assassinated. He was assassinated. Uh, Nero committed suicide. But there was another time before Christ, in 167, during the Greek Empire, before the Romans came in, where a man, a, a Greek king by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, you don't need to memorize all this, but he plundered Jerusalem and he actually set up a statue of Zeus in the Greek temple. That really hacked him off. And they made, he made them give uh, offerings to himself 
you know, treating himself like a god to them. Now, some of you may have heard of Judas Maccabeus. He was, it's even one of the books that's in the uh, Apocrypha of the, of the Roman Catholic Bible. He, he was a great hero. He, he rose up for the Jews. He, he led a revolt and pushed the Greeks out until the Romans came back. And in Daniel 7, he actually, Daniel is actually predicting the rise of four godless empires in a row. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all of these were working Israel over. And it comes to Paul's description of the man of lawlessness as presently being held back until he should be revealed at the proper time. Who did Paul mean? Who was the he he used to describe the one who was holding back this lawless person? Many people feel that he was talking about the Holy Spirit in the believers, in the church, the influence of the church holding back the power of Satan from being totally loosed on the planet. We mentioned sending Christian leaders to government in state level, uh, national level. They go in and they try to keep lawless uh, laws from being written, you know, ungodly laws. The influence of the church, salt and light. As we said, when Jesus died on the cross and was raised three days later, the power of sin was broken. It's effect over us. Satan's influence is still substantial, but it's been limited between Christ's ascension into heaven and his return when he comes back. And shortly before he comes back, you know, the scriptures indicate that's when Satan's going to slowly be released upon the world and things are going to get more and more frantic, more and more frantic, because Satan knows his time is short. You can read that in Re Revelation chapter 12, and we looked at that a little bit. So some believe the period between Christ's ascension is, and his return is this symbolic thousand years John refers to in Revelation 20 when Satan is bound in the abyss. And you've read these passages. We've looked at them. The thousand years also probably symbolizes that time whenever, uh, when the Lord takes over the throne of the new heaven and the new earth for all time. And no one's going to dethrone him. So when it comes to an Antichrist figure, Paul may be referring to somebody, he may not be referring to a certain individual because in Daniel 7.23, he's talking about a beast. And the angel tells Daniel, listen, this fourth beast being mentioned here is not a man. It is not a man, but a kingdom. This is what the angel tells him. So Jesus, Paul, and John all seem to go along with Daniel that the fourth empire that they're talking to is Rome. Remember, book of Revelation. It's written to seven literal churches that are going through persecution. He's writing to them about what they're going through, but it still pertains to us to this day. Satan has a limited bag of tricks, and he's, he can only do so many things. So uh, Paul refers to the, the figure in 2 Thessalonians 2. And being well-versed in the Old Testament, he says, and uh, he's talking about what Daniel mentions in, in, in Daniel 9.26, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, the temple. When did that happen? We've talked about this. Nancy, remember? 70 AD. It happened. It was prophesied. So he's talking about the Roman Empire at this time. Emperor Claudius was the fifth Caesar. He literally coined the phrase, Caesar is Lord. <laughs> you know, if you remember in John 19, when Jesus was being presented by Pontius Pilate, who's questioned him, he brings him back out into the courtyard to the people, and he says, behold, the king of the Jews. 
And the people all yelled back because, you know, they were being riled up and everything. We have no king but Caesar. <laughs> you know, remember him saying that? Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. Well, shall I crucify your king again? We have no king but Caesar. This is the Jews trying. They're so desperate to get rid of Jesus. It's interesting. It's only fitting that one generation later, when Nero succeeded as the next emperor, he demanded to be worshipped as Savior and Lord. What were they crying for? What were the Jews crying for? We have no king but Caesar. And what did the Caesar do? He demanded to be called Savior and Lord. The people had rejected Christ, so they got exactly what they asked for. You know, every time, there is not a leader that takes over anywhere in this world including the United States, that the people technically do not deserve. Because they've let it happen. They've let it happen. No power, no authority comes to power, but that the Lord doesn't allow it. Uh, what did, what did uh, Pontius Pilate said? Do you not know I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And what did Jesus tell him? You'd have no power whatsoever were it not given to you from above. So they got what they asked for, a narcissistic, homicidal maniac. Nero was truly a beast. In fact, he's the one who was believed to have started the great fire in Rome. You've heard uh, Rome burned while Nero fiddled, <laughs> you know. He, he burned a great portion of Rome. The fire burned for nine days in AD 64, and he sought to blame it on the Christians. Because the Christians were starting to gain some popularity in Rome. They were starting to become popular. What did the Pharisees do when Jesus and his following started to get a little popular? They got to put a stop to that. Well, he found a way to do it. And so Christians were persecuted for the next three and a half years. 42 months, which is prophesied in Scripture. 42 months. Christians were brutally killed publicly in the arena they were nailed to crosses, crucified, or they were burned as human candles to light the city streets. I'm sorry, it's just the way it was. Both Peter and Paul were martyred under Nero. The beast of Revelation frantically sought to destroy the church, and this great tribulation was the one he's talking about. This was a great tribulation. It was just the first of many tribulations that have followed and is going to continue to come until Christ returns. The Lord made it clear. John 16, 33. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. He says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Now listen, I could go on about Nero being as literal and antichrist in his day as Adolf Hitler was in his. But some people want to know about the fatal wound. You've heard about the fatal wound on the antichrist? John mentions it in Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Some people think, oh, the Antichrist is going to, somebody's going to try to assassinate the Antichrist and, and somehow or another he's going to heal and rise again and he's going to be like a Christ figure. People are going to follow after him. The Roman Senate and the citizens of Rome, they got tired of Nero. Nero was meeting all of his own personal needs. He could have cared less about Rome. He was draining the treasuries. He was having so much fun. He was doing whatever he wanted to do. He's holding games all the time. Uh, people aren't working. The city's in an uproar. And, and they got tired of it. And so he, uh, he ended up losing all of his supporters. 
Now, there were a lot of attempts upon his life. We've got to get rid of this guy. Remember Hitler had something like 25 attempts on his life by his own people? And he escaped all of them. So did Nero. But when Nero exhausted his circle of supporters, he committed suicide with, uh, with his, the help of his secretary in an act of lonely despair on June 9, 8068. I love his last words. He says, what an artist dies in me. You know, mercy. They were completely given over to the devil. Hitler, Nero, so many others, so given over to the devil, they all died lonely, miserable, wretches. What about Judas? Same, committed suicide. He did what he thought he had to do, and then he ended up absolutely miserable, committed suicide. All right, two years before Nero died, in A.D. 66, the Jews had had enough of Nero's rule and the Romans, and so they did revolt. Nero sent uh, an army. It's possible that this is a rebellion Paul was prophesying in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 3, and 4. He says, don't let anybody deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He demanded to be worshipped. Savior and Lord, I am your Savior and Lord. So he, dis he dispatched an army under a general by the name of Vespasian. That's a great name. This general, by A.D. 68, had put most of Judea back under control. But Nero then committed suicide. They had three other emperors that came, and they only lived for short periods of time before they were either killed or assassinated or, or committed suicide. They came and went in short order. The empire was literally about to crumble. Roman Empire is crumbling. So General Vespasian, he's recalled to Rome and made emperor as a strong military ruler and king to try to resurrect the empire. So Jerusalem was spared for two more years while they were trying to save the empire, the Roman Empire. In AD 70, the empire was resurrected. They were back on solid footing. So he sent his son Titus to finish off Jerusalem in AD 70. 1.1 million Jews killed. They say many... Uh, Many of the, the Jews, the, the, the religious leaders, some of the Pharisees were literally butchered in the tabernacle as it was burned and then annihilated. These are the very people the Jews had conspired to rid themselves of Jesus. So if this was the fatal wound John mentions in Revelation 13, it makes all the sense in the world. John has used the figurative language, uh, certain numbers, symbolism. Folks want to know about the mark of the beast, too. What's that? What is that going to be? Uh, the mark of the beast, uh, the mark on the forehead or on the hand that John mentions in Revelation 13 is most likely a parody of the mark of the lamb, because we've talked about this. In the very next chapter, John mentions a mark placed on the foreheads of those who belong to God, symbolizing their identity with the lamb. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 12, Jesus says that on him who overcomes will, I, will he will write the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I think we all recognize that John didn't mean that the Lord is standing there with a magic marker, you know, writing on, literally writing on people. 
Uh, if you look in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 9, it talks about how the people are marked so that whenever uh, there's a great slaughter that comes, those who are marked as God's people and faithful, they are spared. Just like the angel, you know, that, that went over the death angel that passed over, they don't really need a literal mark. The Holy Spirit brings about change, the proof of our salvation in the way we behave. We talked about that with the children just a few minutes ago back here in the back. Ephesians 1, 13 says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. You and I have the Holy Spirit. Do we have a literal mark upon us? No. But people should be able to tell from our behavior, that's a Christian. That's a believer. That's one of Jesus' people right there. They can tell something about you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And what, what do we call that? The fruit of the Spirit? What is it? What are those nine that are mentioned by Paul? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that are characteristics that believers are supposed to be developing. There was a man in the Depression who made his living fighting dogs. He had two dogs. They were siblings, the dogs were. One was black, one was white. They were big, they were ferocious. And he went from community to community fighting these dogs. And he would wait for all the people to come out. He didn't have any money, they'd find money to gamble. So they'd come out, and the people would look at the dogs, and they would bet on what the black dog or the white dog, and he'd wait. The owner would wait until all the people had made their bets, and then he would bet on one dog or the other. And he cleaned up. He never lost. Every time, whichever dog that he bet on would win that night. People watched him closely. He didn't do anything to them. He didn't hurt one or the other in, the, in any way. But every time he won, made lots of money. A lot of money. This went on for several years from community to community to community. So finally, after about five or six years, he settles down, and, and he's doing quite well. He lives in a nice house, and a reporter comes by his house and, and comes and asks him, can I ask you about your, your life with these dogs? I mean, these two battle-scarred dogs are sitting on either side of the chair that the man is rocking in. He says, you know, you became a legend. You traveled. You made all that money. But the thing is, you never miss a bet. You always won. One night it was a white dog. The next night it was a black dog. The next night it was a black dog. The next night it was a white dog. There's never no rhyme or reason. How did you do that? He says, oh, there's no big trick to it. It's actually very simple. The dog won every night that I fed that day. Didn't feed the other dog. When you and I get saved, we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives. It would be nice if the old sin nature went away, but it doesn't. It's still there within us, always lurking, always ready. And they war with each other. You could read about, Paul talks about that war in Revelation chapter 7. He dealt with it every day of his life. Sometimes the sinful nature triumphs. Sometimes the, the godly nature triumphs. But the, it's very simple. Which one do you feed on a regular basis in your life? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we can qualify with that, that if, if you're feeding it, if you're feeding that nature with the word of God. 
And there are so many people who are Christians, who claim to be Christians, who don't spend the time in this book and feed that godly nature on a daily basis. Pardon? What did I say? I'm sorry. Yeah, Romans 7. Thank you. That's why I bring her along. Another one of those many reasons. (laughs) All righty. And when it comes to the, the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 6, 8 says, Tie them as, as symbols on your hands. Uh, bind them on your foreheads. I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit there, Jared. Uh, some of the legalistic Jews, they literally, it took that literally. They, they built little boxes that they called phylacteries, and they put the Ten Commandments in there, and they would tie them around their heads, you know, look how holy I am. Or they, they'd hang them on their wrists, look how holy I am. You know, I'm, I'm doing this, what it says. That's not what he's talking about. The head is the thoughts. And the hand is the action. Let it show in your thoughts, in your actions. Let your thoughts be transformed. Your mind transformed. We take on the image of God. They may have wore the, the law of God, but they didn't live it. David emphasizes, we're finishing up this topic, in, in, in uh, Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart, he says. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against God. That's what he's talking about. The mark on the head, the mark on the hand. It's not, a little, not literal marks. It's our thoughts. It's our actions. Some Christians do fear a day might come when you're told that unless you denounce your faith in Christ and pledge allegiance to the government, power, whatever that's in power at that time, you're no longer going to be allowed to purchase groceries or, or provide the basic necessities for your family. Now, what might some Christians do? What might we be tempted to do? I mean, you've got kids, you've got grandkids. You know, many of us, we've lived our lives. We're, we're older and we're thinking, well, if that day comes, bring it. I've lived my life, I can handle it, but who do we worry about? Our kids, our children. We don't want to see them suffer. And so we're, we're tempted to rationalize that it might be okay to just say it. To say, I don't really know Jesus. I mean, what did Peter do when it came time? What did he do? I don't know who he is. <laughs> you know, he even said it with a curse. You know, by the time it was three on the third time, be so tempted. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? As long as my heart remains true. The Lord also says, out of the mouth <laughs> comes what's in the heart. Peter denied to save his own skin, but Peter repented, and his lifestyle demonstrated the change in his life that he eventually gave his life. For the cause of Christ, for his faith. The disciples were in a place to know whether or not what they were dying for was true or not. In Hebrews 11.25, the Bible talks about Moses and says, He at one time lived comfortably in Pharaoh's palace. It says, He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a little while. He could have thought, you know, I could live as a spy here in the palace of Pharaoh. Nobody will ever know, but I'll be working for God's people here within the house. Yeah, I'll, I'll still get well fed. My family will be well taken care of and all that. You know, but I'll be God's spy. I'll be that undercover Christian. 
There are a lot of people that volunteer to be undercover Christians. The Lord needs a lot more people that are shining as brilliant lights in the darkness. He called us to be light. He called us to be salt. Do you actually believe any true Antichrist government would let someone off the hook by simply saying they denounce Christ? Okay, you sign your name? Okay, okay, we'll leave you alone. What are they going to want? Proof. They're going to want proof. They're going to want to show you some action that you are definitely denouncing Christ and that you're all for them. They desire the same commitment Christ demands of us through word, thought, and deed. And to the person who would deny Christ to save themselves and their family, the shame of denying Christ would only be magnified. Just think of what Peter did. He's going, he wept bitterly. I have tried to picture that in my mind so many times. What Christ was going through, how he was being humiliated. He's on trial. And yet, the moment the cock crows... It says, Christ turned and he looked and caught Peter's eye in the courtyard. He was destroyed inwardly. Oh, I don't want to have to live with that. Right now, you and I are asked only to be living sacrifices, taking up our our cross daily, obeying our master. But there may come a day. There may come for some of us living today in this very room that we may be required to lay down our life for what we truly believe. It could happen. We see how rapidly things have deteriorated in just the last few years. Things are going on and you think, I can't believe this. It could happen. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And shortly after he did this, he backed up what he said with action. No one has truly lived until they found a cause worth dying for. All right, now we need to look quickly. Not much time tonight on this, but uh, the great prostitute that's mentioned in the book of Revelation 17, 18, and 19. Again, there's been so much unnecessary confusion among Christians as to what or who John is referring to. Others strongly believe, oh, he's talking about the Roman Empire, no question. Others have said, oh, he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Can you not see all the gold, the glitter, the the purple, all that, the satin and everything? Even though John is writing to a distinct people in a distinct time, throughout the Bible, the relationship God has had with his people is referred to as that of a bride and groom. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was the bride. Of God. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. That, that's a picture. You've, talk, you've heard me talk so much about the pictures in the Old Testament that God uses. The pictures are not the reality, but they are designed to present an idea of the intimacy the, 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 between a husband and a wife. It's a picture of the intimacy that God desires to have with each and every single one of us. That kind of intimacy, that kind of communication, that kind of trust. That kind of working together, that's what he wants. And I've said, I've been married to Nancy in a couple months, it'll be 37 years. I know her thoughts. I know her nature. That is what God would have us know. How he thinks, how he feels about things. His nature, he wants us to understand. His nature, from cover to cover, you'll understand the nature of God and how he feels about any topic, whether it's listed in here or not. As a whole, Israel had rejected God's love again and again. And when God came in the flesh to make one more appeal face to face, what did they do? They rejected him and they even 
killed him. Jesus had even told a parable about that. He'd even told a parable about, about the master sending the son to collect, collect the produce from the vineyard. And whenever they saw him, they said, oh, this is the son. And they killed him. When Israel passed on their opportunity with Jesus, God's own son's faithful bride, the doors were thrown open. If Israel won't, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will. We even had that song, don't we? Whosoever will, whosoever will. Through much of their history, Israel craved intimacy with whatever nation, whatever foreign god they felt could best meet their immediate economic or sensual needs. So uh, if you could look at Hosea, he wrote a whole book about it, about Israel and their unfaithfulness. Hosea 9.1, do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. What's more clear than that? Jeremiah 3, 2, 3. Look up to the barren heights, he's speaking to the nation, and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside, you sat waiting for your lovers. You sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. No spring rains have fallen, yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. And then even in the New Testament, whenever Christ came, shortly before he was to be killed, he cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, you stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And look, your house is left to you what? Desolate. According to Ezekiel 16, 7, it says, At one time the bride was shrouded in mystery, glorious like the most beautiful of jewels. In both Ezekiel and Revelation, those nations Israel committed spiritual adultery with would eventually turn on her. The Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans. Even as John is penning these words, Israel is pandering to the Romans. And in just a couple years' time, Rome was going to be annihilate, Rome was going to annihilate Israel, obliterating Jerusalem, killing the 1.1 million Jews in the process. There's no question. There's no question in the book of Revelation who the prostitute is. So we got that. And if you want more about that, I can share it with you. Finally, to close. I want to close this study of the end times by talking about paradise restored. We've got to do that. We've got to talk about paradise was lost in the Garden of Eden. And we've been paying for it ever since. All of us. The opening pages of this book explain how mankind freely chose to rebel, falling from the flawless image of God. You know, we talk about um, creating man in our image. You know, and uh, people often wonder, what does that mean? What did that mean? I think the most important thing it means is we were created perfect in the likeness of God. We were created flawlessly, perfectly, designed to live forever in an Eden that was perfect and flawless. And it wasn't until we chose to rebel that we fell from the image of God. And what is the rest of this book talking about? Trying to bring us back into a relationship with God and restore us to the image of Christ mentions that again and again and again. And it will not happen completely 
We do as much as we can within our lifetime after Christ comes into our life and the Holy Spirit starts molding us. If we allow him more and more feed that nature, he will mold us into the image of Christ. As long as we live, and I've shared this all of my ministry, as long as we live, we will never be sinless. But the more we mature in Christ, we should sin less as we mature in Christ. But it won't be until 1 John 3, 2, John, this John, who's writing here, he says, Brit, my brothers, we are now children of God. And what we will be has not yet been fully known. But we do know that when we see him, whether in death or whether he comes to take us, when he comes to return, says, when we see him, we shall be like him. We will finally be redeemed. Our bodies will be glorified. We shall become like him in that way. We'll be completely again restored to the image of God. And then it's not just our bodies. He restores the earth, the new heaven and the new earth. All of creation is groaning. It says in Revelation chapter 8. Have you ever been one of those folks who occasionally long for the good old days? I remember we were talking about some of the good old days just a little while ago back there. And it's fun. You know, it's fun to sit around and talk. And what the fellowship that we've enjoyed this week, you know, that's something we're going to get to do. And it won't have to end. We'll be able to sit down and talk and enjoy each other and laugh. I remember when prices were lower, 19 cents a gallon. I remember 29 cents a gallon. You know, you were talking about 19 cents a gallon. Uh, as kids, we played out, outside all day long. Remember riding your bike, playing ball? We were outside you know, in the summertime after school was out. You know, We'd leave after breakfast, might not see us again till supper time. We'd be outside riding our bikes, playing ball. The majority of us had two-parent homes. We enjoyed listening to music on the radio. And most Americans who wanted a job had one. I can also remember a healthy body that responded to my brain's commands and it didn't hurt all the time. <sighs> Good times. But in spite of those memories, I wouldn't go back a day. Not one. Why do I want to go back and relive all my past mistakes? And even if I could correct them, I'd make all new ones again. Why do I want to go back? Besides, every day that goes by here on earth brings me one step closer to redemption. To being with my Jesus, a glorified body. Best of all, just seeing him. Why turn around and head the other way? That's vanity. Young people do have a difficult time, and you know this. They have a difficult time getting excited about seeing Jesus return for his people and putting an end to this messed up world because they still have plans. I talked about this on Sunday night. They got plans. They want to get married. You know, they want to enjoy the, life, the, the joy of marriage and have kids. And they haven't been worn down yet by the cares of this world. But the older we grow, the more we hurt, the more pain and the suffering that we see in this world, there comes a point where you finally just go, enough enough and like John finishing up the book of Revelation he says come quickly Lord come quickly Paul wrote in Romans 8 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. God, God cursed the ground. He cursed creation when we fell. We were no longer going to have it easy. And it was our choice. So so even the, the creation fell. In hope, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. In the late summer of, uh, or in the late spring of 2015, I was preaching and singing a revival in southeast Oklahoma, and I stayed on a small farm outside of town. Each morning after breakfast, I went on the back porch, and it was glorious. It was beautiful. I could look out there, and I could see rolling pastures, and there were several lines of trees along the pasture lines, and beautiful uh, green pastures, the flowers, trees full of birds. I could see animals. I could see for a long distance, you know, goats and cattle grazing in the fields because this farmer also had some goats. And on one particular morning, there were birds of unbelievable colors in all the trees singing and a, a gentle breeze was blowing and the sun was climbing higher and I'm studying and praying. I could still smell the bacon from breakfast that we had had. And I'm thinking to myself, is this Oklahoma or is it heaven? It was just one of those mornings. It was so nice. As I continued to study and pray, thanking God for what he had called me to do and what I was getting to do, like, like here this week, just thanking God for that awesome privilege, I felt instantly the Lord would have me look deeper. So I, okay. so I ga- began to gaze at the landscape. And as, as I noticed within the trees, I started looking more closely at the trees and the tree line. And you know what I started to see? Broken branches. You know, decaying wood laying on the ground underneath the trees. Hadn't noticed that before. You know, there was decay. Uh, I'd I'd only been gazing at the surface of the matter. I looked above the tree line, and there's a hawk making a lazy circle in the sky. You know, and it was beautiful and majestic. I thought, wow, that is something. He's riding those those currents. And then all of a sudden, he folded his wings, and he went, dropped like a rock into the pasture. And I went, ooh. Something just died. He's made breakfast out of something that he saw on the ground, a rat or a rabbit or something. There was death. It's like the Lord did that just for me, you know, this bird of prey. At that moment, one of the family dogs climbed onto the porch seeking my attention. It was a big black lab. I was stroking its ears, you know, and thinking about what I'd just seen. And I looked at the dog and his his eyes were old, you know, and I could start to see the cataracts, you know, the cloudy Look, and I noticed that his gums were kind of diseased. So I went, I'm getting the picture. And then I stood up to go inside and I went, oh, <laughs> find out I myself am not immune from a fallen world, from a fallen creation. I've participated in nearly 400 funerals or memorial services, and many times, and I've done several, I did five in December and January. You stand at the gravesides with the grieving family in the heart of winter. One of the things I will do near the end, I will walk over and I'll kick the grass. I'll say, look at this. It's dead. It's brown. So look at the, look at the bushes and the trees. You don't see any trees. I mean, you don't see any flowers, you know. I said, but we have no trouble believing that in just a few more months, this grass is going to green up. It's going to spring to life. These trees are going to be filled with leaves, you know, and those bushes over there. We're going to be mowing the grass, and there'll be birds everywhere. We have no trouble believing that. You know, it's no great thing for the creator of the universe to revive these bodies. 
It doesn't matter. You say, well, what about the person who's cremated? What about the soldier just blown to bit? Hey, what's going to happen to us anyway after a few hundred years? It's no big thing to the Lord who created us from the dust to the ground to reconstitute our bodies and breathe life into them again. It's no big thing. And Paul says it'll happen in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. Hallelujah. It's coming. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I love this. always been my favorite part. If it were not so, I would tell you. I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There's his promise. I'm coming. I'm going to come again and receive you into myself that where I am, you may be also. And then I saw, John wrote, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And he says this. He says, there was no longer any sea. Because see, presently the sea divides. The sea divides nations, it divides ideologies, it's symbolic, it divides us. But there, there will be no more division, see, among the people of the earth. Because we all belong to Christ. Those who have trusted him will be the ones that are inhabiting the new heaven and the new earth. We'll get along. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What? Prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. There again, there's that picture. The bride and the groom. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Even in the Garden of Eden, as wonderful and sweet as that was, the new heaven and the new earth has this over that. He, God was still spirit. Adam and Eve could not physically commune. They could hear the sound of God. They could commune with God in that way. But in the new heaven and the new earth, as you heard me say just the other night, he will be physically present in the form of Jesus Christ. He will dwell with us. We'll be able to see him, talk with him, wrap our arms around him, he with us, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning, no crying, no pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's saying it again. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you. It's coming. Fittingly, the end of this book draws a direct parallel to the beginning. It's not by accident. In Genesis, when humans were given the opportunity, they chose to rebel against their creator. In Revelation, God's people choose to serve him forever. There's no more tempter. In Genesis, Satan's present, continually leading people into sinful lifestyles. In Revelation, Satan has been cast into the lake of fire. His influence is no longer felt. We can't even imagine what that's going to be like. In Genesis, all creation experiences a curse the result of sin, mankind suffers the loss of paradise. He wrote, cursed is the ground because of you in Genesis 3.7. In Revelation, it says in Revelation 22.3, no longer will there be any curse. Again, that's going to be hard for us to understand. In Genesis, all creation will experience the effects of pain and suffering. In Revelation, God has removed all the pain. He's removed all the suffering with the removal of the curse. In Genesis, all mankind is forbidden access to the tree of life. Can't get it. There's no other way. You can. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
You're not going to find it any other way. We're forbidden access to the tree of life, symbolizing eternal life. In Revelation, the tree of life appears again. Comes into view once more, and everyone has access to it. Everybody. In Genesis, the promise was made that in the future, the seed of the woman, Jesus, will prevail. And in Revelation, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, now rules from the throne of paradise over his family. Are you part of that family? Do you know for sure? Again, the greatest difference in the first paradise from the second is God will dwell with us personally. You can know all this. You can keep all this. You can know all this stuff we've talked about. You can know all there is to know about this book. You can know all the facts there are about Jesus and still not know Jesus. I say, I know who President Trump is. I know a lot of stuff about him. There's been a lot of biographies written about him. I know a lot of stuff about him, but you know what? I don't have a personal relationship with him. He doesn't know me. If I decided, like some of these people that I've, we've heard about, I'm going to go to North Korea, and I'm just going to walk around over there and see what's going on. I want to see it for myself. A lot of people have gone over there and disappeared, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I get myself captured, and it's a public deal. You know, he's probably not going to send in the Navy SEALs after me because he doesn't know me. Do you know Jesus? Call the name of the Lord sincerely. Just like the thief. Just like the thief on the cross that was next to him. I've shared this every service. He looked at Jesus. He'd heard about him. He was cursing him. We've all messed up. We've all done things that are very unchristlike, And in a sense, we're bringing shame on Jesus with our lifestyles at times. But he offers forgiveness. He offers salvation anyway. And he looked at him, and he saw how he was treating those who were killing him. He heard him praying for them. Father, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Heard him calling on the name of his God, and he suddenly realized, it's true. Everything I've heard about this man is true. That's him. The Holy Spirit was already dealing with his heart. You better look. Look on him. What did Jesus say? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Now the thief on the other side of the cross was hearing the same stuff. He was seeing the same thing. But he, didn't, he chose not to respond. But this thief did. He finally says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all it took. The Lord knew his heart. The Lord heard his, heard his cry, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I want that, and I know I'm getting it, because this same John also wrote, these things have I written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I know it. I know whom I've believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. Do you? Do you have that? I pray you do. Thank you for listening to this message from Woburn Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us at www.wilburnbaptistchurch.org or you can also like us on Facebook.